Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Okay. Um, well, does anybody remember where we've been so far as we're moving on the solos? What was week one? And I didn't put it on a slide, so you're really going to have to say. What was week one? Where have we been so far? We had an introduction week. Well, I, um, that was the first one. But then after that, yeah. Doctrines of Grace. Okay. Uh-huh. Primary and secondary. Primary, things essential to salvation. Secondary, anything that's not essential to salvation, but we would hold to. Good. Very good. And then uh, as far as the solas, how far are we in that? We've had grace alone. Just want to make sure everybody knows where we are. And we had faith last week, right? So this is the third one, if I'm right, if I remember right. Is that correct? Um, God's word alone. Um, I, I did do handouts. Uh, Kyle has mentioned multiple times. Uh, one week he, he did an outline. One week he didn't. Um, here, anybody wants to give him this tidbit? I've learned this uh, from the past. If you make your outline really vague, it's really hard for people to know whether you follow it or not. So I have an outline back there for you, but it's uh, you know it's pretty simple. I learned that one from Coer back in the day. You just put a couple things in there, and you're pretty free. Uh, spirit can inspire as you go. Uh, I promise my notes are more thorough than that, um, but that's the basic gist of where we're headed. And so first we're going to just take a look at God's purposeful pattern of the use of his word in his people's life. And so that's where we're going to start, kind of look at that through the epics of time. Um, and then we're going to take a look at some of the characteristics of God's word. We've got four of them. Um, the characteristics of God's word as to why we hold to sola scriptura and why it is so important. Um, so let's begin. Um, first and foremost, it is God's purposeful pattern to hold to his word and to use his word in his people's lives. You don't have to turn any further than the opening pages of the first book of God's word, and we see that God is using his word in his people's life. God spoke, and through the power of his word, creation came to be, right? We don't have to go much further than that, too, and we also see that who was involved in this speaking all things into existence? Uh, John gives us a sneak peek of that very early on, right? He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And not only did God create all things by the power of his word, but it has been his purposeful pattern to use his word in his people's lives throughout time. Uh, God spoke with Adam and Eve as he walked with them in the coolness of the garden, right? He was with them in presence and power and just in joy. Imagine what that would have been like for a moment. Or maybe you've put yourself in the place of Mary and Martha at times, you know, and the thought of just getting to hang out with him for a moment, for an evening dinner, Though that would have looked different, I'm sure, than it looked for Adam and Eve, right? There was no constraints of sin yet for them, no barriers of their intimacy and how sin had created that barrier yet. Just fullness of joy, nothing in the way, just enjoying him, talking with him, communicating with him, the intimacy that that would have been. It's kind of neat to imagine. One day we'll have that and even more so. It'll be even better. And so God has not only been creating with his word, but he has now been recreating because of the sin that entered the world through Adam and Eve. A separation, a divide entered into our world. You think about that, Isaiah 59, 2, and your sins and transgressions have caused a, a separation, a divide between you and your God, and he has turned his head so that he cannot hear. I'll look at that verse again later. But this division happened between us and our God, and now this creation has fallen, there's a veil between God and his creation, a division, and he needs to recreate. And he's going to do that again through his word, through his word. We continue through time. God often spoke to his patriarchs in a variety of ways, visions, dreams, so on and so forth, but he was using his word, right? Think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know, 
bladder and the eye. Could you imagine what it was like to lay on a rock, by the way? How is that a pillow? I mean, couldn't he have found some hay or dirt or mud or something? Um, maybe that's, I don't know, maybe God concussed him a little bit to give him his dream. I always wondered why he laid on a rock. Maybe Bryce can tell us if he learned that in one of his classes. I never learned it in any of mine. Have you learned anything on that, Blake? No, me neither. I don't know why on that one. Um, God continued the revelation of his word to his people. Think of Moses, right? And the inspiration of Moses got much of the Torah there through Moses, and God was giving his people his word. Think of the Ten Commandments. That was an even more unique, direct way that he gave his people his word. But once again, he was giving them his word. He was using his word. Continue through the passage of time, and God spoke through his prophets in a, another new, unique, different way. But once again, using his word to speak to his people, to teach his people, to lead his people to himself. And then God was, was silent for what many would argue would be about 400 years. And then at the fullness of time, I think we have this here, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. It would seem impossible, but this word became Incarnate. Christ himself, creator of all things, actually became creation. I love how Philippians 2 actually speaks to this a little bit. It, just the sense of the, the condensation. Is that the right word? No, the condensation? How do I pronounce that? What she said, what Marianne said. Condensation. Uh, that's easy for you to say. Um, the humility uh, on Christ's part to make himself nothing. I mean, read it here, Philippians 2. Made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ did the unthinkable. The word become flesh. The creator God become creation. And then not only humble himself to the point of becoming creation so that once again we can know God, that he can bring us God's words, which we're going to look at that more later, right? Words he spoke were not his own, but the Father who sent him. But then humbled himself even further by dying a death on the cross, the death that you and I deserve, despising its shame, Hebrews 12, right? Why? For the joy set before him. This very creator God endured a death that was set aside at the time for the lowliest of degenerates, criminals, murderers. And yet that wasn't the greatest part of the shame. I know you know that, of the cross. Right? It was greater than that. It wasn't just the cultural shame that was so bad for Christ going into the cross. The night before, it wasn't the thought that lots of people were going to be staring at his near-naked body, or that people would be mocking him and spitting on him. He wasn't worried about people's opinions of him. He knew who he was. No, no, what made him sweat drops of blood was the shame that was coming when his father would turn his face away. It was his father's opinion. He knew that in that moment, he would have to endure God treating him as he should treat me and you. The word become flesh and dwelt among us. Let me see that. Isaiah 59, I believe I have that up there for you. Turned his face away. And of course, we see that moment of Christ enduring that, right? Uh, in the passage of Matthew 27. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So Jesus died on the cross. He endured the shame. Three days later, he rose. Now, during that time when he came back with the apostles, he speaks to what the furtherance, that may be hard to read. I apologize in advance. It's not too bad. It's not the .8 font that you've been getting some of these weeks. Uh, So hopefully, it's a little more legible. Feel free to turn to your copy of God's Word if you need it. Uh, The the passage is John 16. I promise this is the longest passage I'll have for you this morning. (laughs) Uh, John 16, 4b through 15. Um, So the second sentence of verse 4 through verse 15. This is a very important passage. There are other passages, of course. Christ spoke to this multiple times. We'll look at a few of the others of 
God's purposeful pattern of using his word in his people's life. But this speaks directly, of course, uh, we're getting to some inspiration here, uh, how God is going to complete his canon and complete the working of his word. Um, I'll begin reading here. I did not say these things to you from beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage. Think about that for a second. It is to your advantage that I go away. Brains on the wall. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Still have many things to say to you, but I cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Hear this. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he will speak, he will declare it to you, the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Sounds an awful lot like what Christ said in John 7, right? The words that you hear from me are not my own, but belong to the Father who sent me. That's exactly what is continuing here. The God the Father sent God the Son, the Word become flesh, and now Christ and the Father are sending the Spirit to continue to bring God's Word to His people through the inspiration of the rest of the canon, which you and I so casually hold in our laps this morning. Which is amazing. Amazing. God, Christ, returned to His rightful place of glory, and the Holy Spirit came, inspired the apostles to complete God's Word. Um, few verses we hold to, why we hold to this, why we believe this firmly. John 14, 26. So Jesus didn't speak of this just once. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So some would say, well, how are the apostles to remember everything that Jesus said? Because the Holy Spirit reminded them. The Holy Spirit reminded them. And one of the favorite ones that I love to turn to is in Second Peter. This one is just so clear. I'm grateful for this passage. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke as they were carried along by the Spirit. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke as they were carried along by the Spirit. So we see that throughout the passage of time, God has used his word in his people's lives time and time again, and that it has been his purposeful pattern and design. I think we could spend a lot of time on, on why, but we don't have time for that this morning, unfortunately. I think faith has a lot to attach to that, though. Uh, God wants us to trust and to believe and to place faith in him. And so it has been his design to use his word in his people's Lives. And so we see that pattern uh, throughout really all the epics of time, even till today. That has always been his purpose and his pattern. Um, there's a couple observations that I'd like to take from this. Um, what do we witness from this pattern? First, we witness power. Right? At the beginning of creation, God spoke. All things came to be. There's power in God's word. There's power in God's word. Not only did he do the initial creation by the power of his word. He does recreation by the power of his word. Right? No one comes to Christ but through God's word. Romans 10.17. We have that right here. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. This and this alone is how anyone on the face of the planet comes to a right relationship with the God of the universe. God has so designed and chosen to use his word to save his people. And the reason we hold to that is because it's through Christ alone. See, many of these solas have a lot of interplay and overlap. 
John 14, Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. If Christ is the word become flesh, and there's no way to get to a right relationship with God but through Christ, then there is no way, and this is Christ's words, then there's no way for anyone to get to a right relationship with, with God, the Father, but through God's word. It's the only way. It's all that we have. God has been in the business of creating and recreating through the power of his word since the beginning of time. And until Christ comes back in glory and splendor and majesty, this is how he has planned to do it and will do it through the words of Christ. I'd like to open up some thoughts for you all. It's always a neat opportunity for me to learn from you. You always think of things that I don't think of, so this part's fun for me. Um, But we'll have to limit it to a degree. What would be some potential dangers that you all have seen or could see, you think, of not holding to sola scriptura? What would be some potential dangers of not holding to sola scriptura, God's word alone? What do you think? Or what have you seen? Yeah. If I don't have God's word, then I only have my thoughts and my own decisions and my own will mm-hmm. directed myself. And um, I have found that's very shaky and very insecure and doesn't work at all. Hmm. Absolutely. So she was saying, if, if I don't have God's word, all I have is really mine. Uh, my thoughts, my thinking. I think we see a lot of that today. Absolutely. And if that becomes my source of authority, what have I made myself? <laughs> well, that, definitely a fool. She said a fool. Uh, yes, I, I would agree. I've placed myself in the position of God. Absolutely. I've become my own little demigod, right? Uh, I determine truth for me, right? Uh, well, that's, that's called relativism, and that's the culture that we live in today. Yeah? The scripture alone, the truth is, if that's not true, then where else are we going to go? Hmm. makes me think of the apostles when many forsook Christ right after he said the hard thing, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. And he turned to them and said, will you also leave? And one of the few times Peter did not put his foot in his mouth. Love it. Where else will we go? You have the words of life. Yeah. Where else will we go? Um, yeah. Thoughts, yeah. And say not just the problem of going to something other than scripture, but it should be only scripture because then you can take scripture and then add to it. And that's going to lead you into all kinds of error. Yeah. Yeah, and so it has to be sola only scripture, right? That if we add to it, really we take away from it. And that is definitely the danger. Yeah, in the back. I see you. Oh, he's pointing at Ernie. <laughs> what do you got, Ernie? Oh, you can't hear the conversations. Uh, I will repeat what they said. So she was saying um, that you can't add to Scripture, because if you add to Scripture, then you take away from Scripture, um, which, is, which is a great point. Um, well, it looks like we're done now, Ernie. Sorry, you only got that last one, brother. Um, maybe some of it will be caught in the recordings. A um, couple of thoughts I had. If, if we do not, and the dangers of not holding to sola scriptura, you lose all the rest of the solas. You would lose it all. A couple examples. The addition of works. I lose sola fide. Faith alone. 
If I lose the merited work of Christ by adding my own work, I lose sola gratia, grace alone. If I elevate man over Christ, I lose sola Christo. And if man stills the glory of God, we lose sola Deo Gloria. All of these are interconnected and overlap, um, which is why we hold to them all, of course. Um, But the loss of one could very easily lead to the loss of them all. It's a slippery slope. And begins, I, I think, with we have to hold firmly to the Word of God. Firmly, firmly. There's also some protections that we get um, from holding to sola scriptura. Um, we mentioned just a couple of them here, but I think they're worthy of pointing out specifically and then just looking at even um, through the ages how God has protected his people by his word and holding solely to his word. First one is we're protected from man stealing the glory of God. I love this one. Think about this. Uh, if I was able to walk up this morning and say, I have a new word from you, then it would be very easy for people to begin to either elevate me in their mind or for me to begin to elevate me in my mind, thinking, wow, how special and great am I? And to really steal the glory of God, whether it be from the observance or the deliverer of this new truth, whatever it might be. And this is a helpful observation for me. Think of 2 Corinthians 12, 7, when, when even Paul himself in this situation, who really was inspired by God and given exceedingly great revelations by God, was delivered a thorn to keep him humble. Why? Because of the exceedingly great revelations that were given to him by God. God was wanting to make sure he never got into a place to try to steal his glory. Sola Scriptura protects us from man stealing God's glory. These are God's words, not ours. God's words. It also protects the fidelity to truth, right? If, if I were able to bring a new truth to you, a new word to you, a, a fresh and new revelation, I would very easily be able to twist God's word, just like you all were just talking about. If I add to God's word, really I subtract from God's word. I can twist and change truth very quickly. And we have seen that over the passages of time in many different ways, which is, uh, I think, another way we've seen God's protection in clinging to sola scriptura. You think of the Gnosticism in the time of the apostles and the clinging and holding to God's word alone protected them. You think of the Montanism that shortly followed the apostles during the early church age, the corruption, dark ages, the corruption of the Latin Vulgate, the suppression of God's word from his people, or even maybe the word of life movement that we're dealing with today, in every single one of those different dispensations of time, God has protected his people by clinging to his word, keeping his word for his people. So there are protections that are very helpful for us. In all of these ways, these potential pitfalls, dangers throughout the passage of time, um, they come from an eroding of the character of God's word, which is what I, I want to spend the rest of our time on this morning. They come from an eroding away of the character of God's word. So the first thing I want to talk about is the authority of God's word. And authority really runs to inspiration. But what I'd like to look at first is, anytime you're thinking about authority, I want you to think about the author. The first several letters of the word authority, actually. Considering authority, think of the author. If I was reading a uh, children's book, Uh, or rather a book on children on, say, parenting. Um, I want to be a good parent, right? I'm a parent. But it was written by an 18-year-old whippersnapper who's never been married and never had a kid. Would there be much authority that I would place on that book? You know, would I I really be seeking to apply it to my life? Like, that's a great point. This kid's really got it all figured out. No, of course not, right? That's silly. But if I received a handwritten personal letter from my own parents who I know have shepherded, loved, cared, cultivated me, right? I'm going to place a lot, a lot more authority on that, right? So too it is with God's word. The authority of God's word runs back to who do I hold to the author of this is. Inspiration. Here's another question. It's really a challenging observation for you. I believe I put it up here, if you can read it. Just a devotional aspect to take away for this morning, hopefully. Ask yourself this, just for your own 
personal cultivation, hopefully. How serious we are in our obedience to God's word could serve as a helpful barometer to our view of the authority of God's word. And put it another way, if a, if a personal inspector were hired to be able to somehow supernaturally be able to follow you around and see your motives and your desires for why you do what you do, and they are able to make observations to how seriously you are going about submitting to and obeying the authority of God's word in your life, what would they find? Would they find a God-fearing, grateful, loving, obedient child who's joyfully dying to themselves for the surpassing joys and pleasures to be found in Christ? Or perhaps would they be finding a growing, desensitized conscience to sin, a wrestling with whether or not the truths and promises of God's word are real, Or perhaps would they find someone who's just far too busy to really honestly be able to assess at all because they're so wrapped up with the cares and concerns and affairs of this world. Just a challenging observation for me, actually, as I was going through this, and I thought, well, if it's helpful for me, perhaps it would be helpful for you. Know this and take this gospel promise away as an encouragement to you. If you're finding yourself maybe relating more to the latter than the former, Romans 8.1 is true of you if you are a brother and sister in Christ this morning. There is no condemnation for you. None. As Paul was wrestling with this inner tension in his heart of wretched man am I who will deliver me from this body of death, he breaks out into worship, the remembrance of the truth. Praise God, right? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for you. If there is a wrestling, if there is a conviction that you're not submitting to the authority of God's word, praise God, that's an evidence of grace in your life. Because anybody who's not convicted or anybody who's not a believer, there is no conviction. There is no wrestling. Because I've thrown off the authority of God's word altogether. I'm the authority, right? I've placed myself as God. And so if there is a wrestling and a conviction and you feel like you're failing, praise God. Welcome to the club. That's why it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's word alone. So be encouraged. Let's go back to the author here real quick. The authority of God's word runs to that God is actually the inspiring author of his word. Authority of God's word is inseparably attached to the fact that we hold to that God is the inspiring author of his word. We looked at several verses earlier, um, you know, Second Peter being a good one. I don't know if I have these others. No, I don't. Um, you know, another one that's helpful, and many of you are probably already thinking of it, Second Timothy 3.16. It's another great verse for holding to, you know, the inspiration of God's word, that it came from God. Of course, Christ spoke several times about that he'll send the Holy Spirit to remind them of all things, to inspire them. For the completion of the canning and the writing of God's word, no prophecy was ever produced, 2 Peter 1.21, right? By the will of man, but men spoke as they were carried along by the Spirit in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. For all scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God may be competent or fully equipped, ready for every good work. Some versions even use the word complete kind of like that, complete, ready for every good work. But it's breathed out by God, inspiration of Scripture. We believe in the organic inspiration of Scripture, meaning the the human organisms that God used, there were people, right, that God was using, you know, namely Paul, right, in the New Testament, but Peter wrote some, and John wrote some, and many of these apostles, right? And you Maybe some confusion attached to that at times, I understand. Uh, There's an illustration that's sometimes been helpful for me when considering the inspiration of God's word and, and how that's attached to the authority. You know, how do, how do I know that, you know, Paul wasn't slipping through in these words a little bit? You know, how much of this is Paul and how much of this is Jesus and his words, right? No, it was all Christ's words. Uh, consider this illustration. It does fall short, but hopefully it's, it's helpful when considering the organic inspiration of scripture is, uh, who was who that painter that had the crazy hair that talked real softly as he did a happy tree? What was this? Bob Ross? Bob Ross, am I saying that? Okay, Bob Ross. Anybody remember him? None of you guys. Some of you remember him? That's because he's on Netflix now. You saw him on Netflix. You didn't see him on TV. You saw him on Netflix. Well, I... Um, Some of us are old enough to remember that. Um, Happy tree and happy cloud and everything was happy. Well, think about 
Think about Bob Ross for a second. He had a, a litany of, of different tools that he used, right? Sometimes he'd have like a little straight edge and he'd do certain things and it was amazing, right? Sometimes he'd have a big fluffy, uh, what are the painting things called? Brush, thank you. <laughs> Hard morning. He had a big fluffy brush some morning. You know, sometimes he would, he would have a real fine granular brush, right, for those little other edges and stuff. Each tool, unique, right, in its design, each tool would communicate different things and how he's using it. But in the bottom right-hand corner, would he give credit to all the brushes or would he write Bob Ross in the corner of that painting? He'd write Bob Ross. Why? He did it. He was the inspirer of the work. So too it is, not perfectly, this is an imperfect illustration, but so too it is with God's word. The human organisms were living and active. We get the personality, right, and the development and the culture of the people. We see the more simplicity of the words of John and his circular of reasoning as we read him, right? And we see the incredible, through the sovereignty of God, preparation of Paul, and the writings of his. And they come across, and we notice them. God is using those organisms, but so too using them in a way that it's his words, not theirs. We believe and hold to the inspiration of God's word, and if it is fully inspired by him, it sits in authority over me and you. God's word has authority. Next, God's word is truthful. He speaks truthfully truthfully. Uh, John 17, 17, helpful verse for this. I think I got it there. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. I love that. Jesus' high priestly prayer, he's praying over his apostles. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. The oldest lie that may ever exist runs at the heart of this. You know what I'm thinking of? God surely didn't say the serpent, right? Satan himself, one of the first tricks he pulled out of his tool belt of trickiness or whatever, I'm doing great with words this morning, was to run at the heart of the truthfulness of God's word. That was the first thing he did. He attacked the truthfulness of God's word. And it's interesting to note, do you remember how, you know, Eve in that moment, though Adam was there, we know, responded? She responded exactly with what God said. She knew exactly what he said. But Satan's first trick was to question the truthfulness, or we like to use the fancy word because we're not scared of four-syllable words here, inerrancy of God's word. Inerrant, without error. The inerrancy of God's word. You think of it in this way, is to question the inerrancy of God's word, or the truthfulness of it, is to either question the inerrancy of God, if he was the inspirer of it, so if I believe that God inspired God's word, but I believe it holds errors, then I believe God has errors. Or, if I question the inerrancy of God's word, maybe I'm just questioning whether or not God inspired it at all, right? Maybe if I believe that God is without error, then I must believe that God didn't actually inspire it. One of those two things would seemingly have to be true. One of the things that's often been encouraging to me um, when considering the inerrancy of God and the proofs of uh, that Christ is the Messiah was some research that was done one time. Once again, not perfect illustration, but helpful to understand just the impossibility um, of how God's word has always proven itself true and Christ proved himself true to truly be the Messiah over time. And some of you have probably heard this illustration. There was uh, somewhere around 300 prophecies of Christ as the Messiah. If you were to take just the statistical probability, I know, finance, the statistical probability that Christ would fulfill just eight of those 300 plus prophecies, that he is the Messiah, which God fully inspired in his word, said ahead of time, truthfully, this will be the case. This is how you will know he is the Messiah. Um, Let's look at just eight of them. One, the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. 2. The Messiah betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That was in Zechariah 11. 3. The Messiah's clothes would be gambled away. That's in Psalms 22. Uh, 4. The Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. Also, Psalm 22. 5. The Messiah's bones would not be broken. Psalm 34. 
6, the Messiah would be born in the tribe of Judah, Isaiah 37. 7, the Messiah would be called from Egypt, Hosea 11, 1. And 8, the Messiah would be buried in a rich man's grave. Well, many of us remember this one. That's Isaiah 53. What a sweet chapter that is. The odds of all eight, just those eight coming true, would be equivalent to this. If you were to take silver dollars, cover the state of Texas two feet deep, silver dollars, and then take a magic marker as you're flying over it in a helicopter and just randomly throw one more silver dollar out there, mix it all up, blindfold somebody at the Rio de Janeiro, and just send them in, say, okay, go find the one marked coin. The same odds of him finding that one marked coin would be the same odds of Christ fulfilling just eight of the 300 plus prophecies of him. Incredible. Incredible. Impossible, right? Unless the creator, sovereign God of the universe, who is fully omnipotent, fully omniscient, fully outside of time and space, able to orchestrate and align all things so that when he speaks, he knows it will be true because he causes it to be true, whether in his word or through the work of Christ himself. No, God speaks truthfully. He speaks truthfully. One of my greatest assurances of that is in the person and work of Christ. It's helpful to me. Uh, a definition when we're thinking about the inerrancy of Scripture is here. It came from, by the way, one of the helpful books used as a resource this morning, God's Word Alone, Matthew Barrett. If any of you are looking for a really thick book to spend a lot of time on, yeah. Oh, I don't know. Uh, anybody want to do the math on that and get back to um, him? You know, you can let me know as well. I have no idea. That's a great question. Um, I didn't make the illustration, uh, so I, 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 don't, I, I was not the one who did the math. It was people much smarter than me um, that did that. That's a good question, though. Um, here's our definition for us this morning. I took this from Matthew Barrett. It's on page 265 of his book there, God's Word Alone. Scripture in its original manuscripts does not err in all the biblical it does not err in all that the biblical authors assert. So everything that the biblical authors assert, there is no error. So what that is getting at, and what he's trying to say here, is that in anything that God asserts in Scripture, there is no error, okay? But we need to be careful when talking about the inerrancy of Scripture of the purpose of Scripture. What is the purpose of Scripture? Why did God give us his word? A guide to be reconciled to know him. Those are the answers. Salvation. It's for God to redeem his people, right? And to give us all that is needed for life and godliness, right? All that is needed for life and godliness. Or 2 Timothy 3.16, verse 17, right? To prepare us for every good work. Life and godliness. To have life, to have salvation with him. And so God's purpose of scripture is redeeming. It's to call his people to himself. It's to save you. There are many other things that play within that. We learn much about God. We have to know much about God in order to be redeemed. We learn much about ourselves. We have to know things about ourselves in order to be redeemed. God is holy. God is just, right? Gracious, we are his creation, we're made in his image, but also we are sinners in need of redemption, right? All those things are necessary in order for redemption. So there's many things we learn along the way, but God's word is not created to be a cookbook, for instance. I've seen that at times. Uh, now, maybe there are some neat things to be taken away from God's word. I'm not sure. I'm definitely not the authority on that, but I've seen cookbooks made um, from God's word. That was not the intention when God made his word, right, to be the leading authority on how your diet should look today, okay, right? And so we need to be careful of pressing other things, right, into what God was intending to speak authoritatively on, 
okay? It um, doesn't mean that there's not other great things, right? We learn a lot about parenting. We learn a lot about marriage, right? But all those things are interplaying and working back to the gospel, and that is why we are learning about those things. So anything that God speaks directly about, he is speaking authoritatively and without error. And anything through biblical principle that we can indirectly apply to, right, there is also authority there as well. I'm going to move on for the sake of time. Clarity. God speaks with clarity. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Augustine said this, the Holy Spirit has generously and advantageously planned the Holy Scripture in such a way that the easier passages, he relieves our hunger, and the more obscure, he drives away our pride. Practically, nothing is dug out from those obscure texts which is not discovered to be said very plainly in another. I love that. God speaks clearly. We have a God that has so chosen to self-disclose. Love that. The unknowable, infinite creator God, who is holy and so different than us, has chosen to reveal himself to you and me. And he does so clearly in his word. It is not far off that you cannot find it. It It's not obscure so that you cannot know it. I love this about God's word. The simplest of men and women can approach God's word and understand who God is. And the wisest and smartest of intellectuals can walk up to it and be completely lost. It's all a matter of whether or not God's Holy Spirit is applying and opening our eyes. Otherwise, we're blind. But it's so clear. God makes his word clear to his people. And it's very understandable, yet somehow challenging at the same time. It always challenges us. But God has made himself clear. This does not mean that certain passages of scripture are not tough. This does not mean that we will not have to dig for understanding in certain areas, right? And that some things will be harder than others. But the things that definitely are essential for salvation, as opposed to secondary things... God has made abundantly clear to us through his word. Um, For the sake of time, we're going to move on even more quickly. Okay, last but not least, I want to talk about just the sufficiency of God's word. This is something that Faith Bible does an excellent job of elevating and I think is so important, sufficiency of God's word. Yeah, I do have 2 Peter up there. Fantastic. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God's word is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Anything I need for those two things Eternity in a right relationship with God and growing in that relationship with God, honoring him in my marriage, being a good father, whatever it might be, being a good employee and having a workplace theology, all that is needed for those things, we have a sufficient word of God. It's sufficient. It's sufficient. Calvin said this, Scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit. Just as nothing is omitted that is both necessary and useful to know, so nothing is taught except what is expedient to know. Hmm. That's good. He had a way with words. Um, Nothing is omitted that is both necessary and useful, so nothing is taught except what is expedient. God's word is sufficient. He gives us exactly what we need need. I don't need a shaman on the side to help me understand the purpose of my life. I don't need a self-help book to get out of my depression, fill in the blank, whatever it might be. It's not a question of if you're going to go through a hard time or if you're going to wrestle with something in your life. It's when. And it's good to know in that moment that God's word is sufficient for you. He has what you need for all that pertains to life and godliness. If we add to it, take away from it. If we add to it, we take away from it. All right, almost 10 till. So we have all that we need. Um, I like to say it this way. By sufficiency, we mean that there is nothing that needs to be added to God's word to consult us 
or further instruct us on any matter that God speaks to directly in his word, whether that be directly or indirectly through well-applied biblical principles. Sufficiency of God's word. So just to recap, we've looked at uh, the pattern and purposeful pattern of God's word through his people's life and how he has used it. Um, And we've looked at four helpful characteristics, I hope, of God's word. Authority, which leads back to the inspiration of God's word. The truthfulness, which points to the inerrancy of God's word. And the clarity and sufficiency of God's word. There's just two takeaways I'd like for you to have this morning before we dismiss. We can have some time for questions if you have any. Um, but you won't hurt my feelings if you don't. First one is this, and this was my desire. I was praying this this morning because I've been bathing this time in prayer over this. Is I, I just hope that this leads you to worship. I hope that this leads you to worship. As you think about what God has given us in his word, and there are men and women who have bled so that you may have this in your laps this morning, in your language, in a faithful way, it should lead you to worship. God has given you this. And I hope that this time just has led you to a greater appreciation, love, and devotion to God's word. That as you think about all these truths about God's word, that it should help you fall more and deeply in love with his word. To want to spend more time with him every morning that you're just eagerly jumping out of bed. You're not getting to that second snooze button. No way. It's time for me to go spend some time with God and his word. Did that happen to anybody this week? Well, next week, right? I really do hope and pray that that would be the case for all of us. Oh, thank you. That's my little, it's my straight edge because I'm OCD. I'm underlining. Well, any questions? I've never done so well on timing. It is exactly 10 till. <laughs> I, yeah, and I did give time for questions in the middle. So if there are none, we can pray and be dismissed. But I wanted to have an opportunity. Yeah, buddy. Hmm. Yeah. So what he's getting to is that there are textual variants, right, in the later on, right, recordings of Scripture that we have. When we hold to inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture, we, we are holding to the inerrancy of the original documents, okay? That is very helpful. I think Bryce mentioned that in a sermon of his a couple of weeks ago, did he not, uh, when he was talking about that because there was a textual variant in one of the passages that he was speaking on. So we are holding to the inerrancy of the original Documents, and we use exactly the words you said. Textual. Uh, we have to, You have to be very careful with textual criticism, right? I do not handle God's word like I handle all other literature. This is God's word, but there is a helpful, right, study of His word that can lead me to a confidence that the original manuscripts were fully inerrant, right, fully inspired by God. Um, there is, uh, just to briefly look at it, uh, some of the uh, biggest, oldest books that we have to this day. If you were to try to hold them up to the same standards, try to think, what, what's one of those really, really old books? Um, now I'm going off the hip, so this is dangerous. Uh, oh, yeah, the Iliad, Homer and the Iliad and some of those others. They will hand those to your kids in school to this day, and they will have no qualms about how original or perfect this was to the original writing. But the number of copies and the number of variants in that Iliad falls, I believe, it is thousands upon thousands of times less than the number of copies that are exactly the same that we have for God's Word. Textual criticism unfairly approaches God's Word because it approaches God's Word with a blind eye and a darkened heart. And they want They have an agenda. They want to try to poke holes in it, but God's word proves itself true, and it is living and active, like Linda said this morning, and so God still uses it, absolutely. It's a great question. Any others? That was real geeky stuff. I have some geeky books for you, if you'd like, um, that are real thick and have lots of big words um, and uh, are currently collecting dust on one of my bookshelves that I read in the past, so if you'd like, uh, I can get you some of those. Yeah. Multifaceted, like holding it up to a diamond, and as you, yeah. 
It's a neat observation. Did one of the gallants over there have a question? Yeah, or a thought? Yeah. It's true. It's a good point. Questioning of the truthfulness maybe already was starting to have its way with her. It's a great point. It's a great point. Yeah, uh, she was pointing out that uh, when Satan questioned the truthfulness of God's word, that Eve actually did sphere a little bit, or sphere? I'm having trouble. Veer. Words are hard, y'all. Um, she veered a little bit uh, from exactly what God said, and she added to it a little bit, actually. Yeah, you're right. So there was an impact to Satan questioning the truthfulness of God's word already at that point, which her husband was not shepherding um, well in that moment at all. Um, but we'll leave that for another talk, maybe on a marriage conference or something. Um, all right, gang, well, we're about six till, and I've never uh, finished anything on time like this before. So I'm going to pray before we mess it up, uh, and you guys will be dismissed for worship. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this morning and for the opportunity and privilege, God, to just hopefully fall in love with your word all over again, um, God, because we love you. And so, Lord, let us uh, enjoy you this morning. I pray that as we enter worship this morning, that you would be with our leaders for worship, that, God, you'd be speaking through them, using them, that, God, you'd be preparing our hearts to sit at the foot of your throne to enjoy you, and, God, prepare us and make us ready to receive your word. What a gift, what a privilege. And God, one that I pray that for all of us, we would not be just taking advantage of on Sunday mornings, but on every single day, every single morning, we would be so eager to get to come and be in your presence, to sit at your feet, to inquire and ask questions of you through your word, and to get to know you better, and to be moved by you, God. He who spends much time in God's word looks much like God's son. And Lord, that is our desire that we want to, from one degree of glory to the next, look more like you, Jesus. Honor you and glorify you, God. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.